0: Chapter One, Part Two of The Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter One The Lamp of Sacrifice. Part Two. Nine. While, however, I would especially deprecate the imputation of any other acceptableness or usefulness to the gift itself than that which it receives from the spirit of its presentation, it may be well to observe that there is a lower advantage which never fails to accompany a dutiful observance of any right abstract principle. While the first fruits of his possessions were required from the Israelite as a testimony of fidelity, THE PAYMENT OF THOSE FIRST FRUITS WAS NEVERTHELESS REWARDED, AND THAT CONNECTEDLY AND SPECIFICALLY BY THE INCREASE OF THOSE POSSESSIONS. WEALTH AND LENGTH OF DAYS AND PEACE WERE THE PROMISED AND EXPERIENCED REWARDS OF HIS OFFERING, THOUGH THEY WERE NOT TO BE THE OBJECTS OF IT. THE tithe PAID INTO THE STOREHOUSE WAS THE EXPRESSED CONDITION OF THE BLESSING WHICH THERE SHOULD NOT BE ROOM ENOUGH TO RECEIVE, AND IT WILL BE THUS ALWAYS, God never forgets any work or labor of love, and whatever it may be of which the first and best proportions or powers have been presented to him, he will multiply and increase sevenfold. Therefore, though it may not be necessarily the interest of religion to admit the service of the arts, the arts will never flourish until they have been primarily devoted to that service. Devoted both by architect and employer, by the one in scrupulous, earnest, affectionate design, by the other in expenditure at least more frank, at least less calculating than that which he would admit in the indulgence of his own private feelings. Let this principle be but once fairly acknowledged among us, and however it may be chilled and repressed in practice, however feeble may be its real influence, however the sacredness of it may be diminished by counterworkings of vanity and self-interest. Yet its mere acknowledgment would bring a reward, and with our present accumulation of means and of intellect, there would be such an impulse and vitality given to art as it has not felt since the thirteenth century. And I do not assert this as other than a national consequence." I should indeed expect a larger measure of every great and spiritual faculty to be always given, where those faculties had been wisely and religiously employed. But the impulse to which I refer would be, humanely speaking, certain, and would naturally result from obedience to the two great conditions enforced by the spirit of sacrifice. First, that we should in everything do our best, and secondly, that we should consider increase of apparent labour as an increase of beauty in the building. A few practical deductions from these two conditions, and I have done. 10. For the first, it is alone enough to secure success, and it is for want of observing it that we continually fail. We are none of us so good architects as to be able to work habitually beneath our strength and yet there is not a building that I know of lately raised, wherein it is not sufficiently evident that neither architect nor builder has done his best. It is the especial characteristic of modern work. All old work, nearly, has been hard work. It may be the hard work of children, of barbarians, of rustics, but it is always their utmost. Ours has as constantly the look of money's worth. OF A STOPPING SHORT WHEREVER AND WHENEVER WE CAN, OF A LAZY COMPLIANCE WITH LOW CONDITIONS, NEVER OF A FAIR PUTTING FORTH OF OUR STRENGTH. LET US HAVE DONE WITH THIS KIND OF WORK AT ONCE, CAST OFF EVERY TEMPTATION TO IT, DO NOT LET US DEGRADE OURSELVES VOLUNTARILY, AND THEN MUTTER AND MOURN OVER OUR SHORTCOMINGS. LET US CONFESS OUR POVERTY AND OUR PARSIMONY, BUT NOT BELIE OUR HUMAN INTELLECT, It is not even a question of how much we are to do, but of how it is to be done. It is not a question of doing more, but of doing better. Do not let us boss our roofs with wretched, half-worked, blunt-edged rosettes. Do not let us flank our gates with rigid imitations of medieval statuary. Such things are mere insults to common sense, and only unfit us for feeling the nobility of their prototypes. WE HAVE SO MUCH, SUPPOSED, TO BE SPENT IN DECORATION. LET US GO TO THE FLAXMAN OF HIS TIME, WHOEVER HE MAY BE, AND BID HIM CARVE FOR US A SINGLE STATUE, frieze, OR CAPITAL, OR AS MANY AS WE CAN AFFORD, COMPELLING UPON HIM THE ONE CONDITION THAT THEY SHALL BE THE BEST HE CAN DO. PLACE THEM WHERE THEY WILL BE OF THE MOST VALUE AND BE CONTENT. OUR OTHER CAPITALS MAY BE MERE BLOCKS, AND OUR OTHER NICHES EMPTY. No matter. Better our work unfinished than all bad. It may be that we do not desire ornament of so high an order. Choose, then, a less developed style, also, if you will, rougher material. The law which we are enforcing requires only that what we pretend to do and to give shall both be the best of their kind. Choose, therefore, the Norman hatchet work instead of the flaxman frieze and statue, but let it be the best hatchet-work. And if you cannot afford marble, use cayenne stone, but from the best bed, and if not stone, brick, but the best brick, preferring always what is good of a lower order of work or material to what is bad of a higher. For this is not only the way to improve every kind of work and to put every kind of material to better use, but it is more honest and unpretending, It is in harmony with other just, upright, and manly principles whose range we shall have presently to take into consideration. 11. The other condition which we had to notice was the value of the appearance of labor upon architecture. I have spoken of this before. Footnote. Modern Painters, Part 1, Section 1, Chapter 3. End of footnote and it is indeed one of the most frequent sources of pleasure, which belong to the art, always, however, within certain somewhat remarkable limits. For it does not at first appear easily to be explained why labour, as represented by materials of value, should, without sense of wrong or error, bear being wasted, while the waste of actual workmanship is always painful so soon as it is apparent. But so it is, that while precious materials may with a certain profusion and negligence be employed for the magnificence of what is seldom seen the work of man cannot be carelessly and idly bestowed without an immediate sense of wrong as if the strength of the living creature were never intended by its maker to be sacrificed in vain though it is well for us sometimes to part with what we esteem precious of substance as showing that in such a service it becomes but dross and dust. And in the nice balance between the straightening of effort or enthusiasm on the one hand, and vainly casting away upon the other, there are more questions than can be met by any but very just and watchful feeling. In general, it is less the mere loss of labour that offends us than the lack of judgment implied by such a loss. So that if men confessedly work for work's sake, and it does not appear that they are ignorant where or how to make their labour tell, we shall not be grossly offended. On the contrary, we shall be pleased if the work be lost in carrying out a principle or in avoiding a deception. It indeed is a law properly belonging to another part of our subject, but it may be allowably stated here that. Whenever, by the construction of a building, some parts of it are hidden from the eye, which are the continuation of others bearing some consistent ornament, it is not well that the ornament should cease in the parts concealed. Credit is given for it, and it should not be deceptively withdrawn, as, for instance, in the sculpture of the backs of the statues of a temple pediment, never perhaps to be seen, but yet not lawfully to be left unfinished.' and so in the working out of ornaments in dark concealed places, in which it is best to err on the side of completion, and in the carrying round of string courses and other such continuous work, not but that they may stop sometimes on the point of going into some palpably impenetrable recess, but then let them stop boldly and markedly on some distinct terminal ornament, and never be supposed to exist where they do not. The arches of the towers which flank the transepts of Grand Cathedral have rosette ornaments on their spandrels, on the three visible sides, none on the side towards the roof. The right of this is rather a nice point for question. 12. Visibility, however we must remember, depends not only on situation but on distance, and there is no way in which work is more painfully and unwisely lost than in its over-delicacy on parts distant from the eye. Here again the principle of honesty must govern our treatment. We must not work any kind of ornament which is, perhaps, to cover the whole building, or at least to occur on all parts of it, delicately where it is near the eye, and rudely where it is removed from it. This is trickery and dishonesty. Consider first what kinds of ornaments will tell in the distance and what near, and so distribute them keeping such as by their nature are delicate down near the eye, and throwing the bold and rough kinds of work to the top. And if there be any kind which is to be both near and far off, take care that it be as boldly and rudely wrought where it is well seen as where it is distant, so that the spectator may know exactly what it is and what it is worth. Thus chequered patterns, and in general such ornaments as common workmen can execute, may extend over the whole building. But bar reliefs and fine niches and capitals should be kept down, and the common sense of this will always give a building dignity, even though there be some abruptness or awkwardness in the resulting arrangements. Thus at San Zeno, at Verona, the bar reliefs full of incident and interest are confined to the parallelogram of the front, reaching to the height of the capitals of the columns of the porch. Above these we find a simple, though most lovely little arcade and above that only blank wall with square face shafts the whole effect is tenfold grander and better than if the entire facade had been covered with bad work and may serve for an example of the way to place little where we cannot afford much so again the transept gates of rouen footnote henceforward for the sake of convenience when i name any cathedral town in this manner let me be understood to speak of its cathedral church are covered with delicate bas-reliefs of which i shall speak at greater length presently up to about once and a half a man's height and above that come the usual and more visible statues and niches so in the campanile at florence the circuit of bas-reliefs is on its lowest story above that come its statues and above them all its patterned mosaic and twisted columns exquisitely finished like all italian work of the time but still in the eye of the florentine rough and commonplace by comparison with the bas reliefs so generally the most delicate niche work and best mouldings of the french gothic are in gates and low windows well within sight Although it being the very spirit of that style to trust to its exuberance for effect, there is occasionally a burst upwards and blossoming unrestrainably to the sky, as in the pediment of the west front of Rouen, and in the recess of the rose window behind it, where there are some most elaborate flower mouldings, all but invisible from below, and only adding a general enrichment to the deep shadows that relieve the shafts of the advanced pediment. It is observable, however, that this very work is bad flamboyant and has corrupt Renaissance characters in its detail as well as use. While in the earlier and grander North and South gates there is a very noble proportioning of the work to the distance, the niches and statues which crown the Northern One at a height of about one hundred feet from the ground being alike colossal and simple, visibly so from below, so as to induce no deception, and yet honestly and well finished above, and all that they are expected to be, the features very beautiful, full of expression, and as delicately wrought as any work of the period. 13. It is to be remembered, however, that while the ornaments in every fine ancient building, without exception so far as I am aware, are most delicate at the base, they are often in greater effective quantity on the upper parts. In high towers this is perfectly natural and right, the solidity of the foundation being as necessary as the division and penetration of the superstructure. Hence the lighter work and richly pierced crowns of late Gothic towers. The Campanile of Giotto at Florence, already alluded to, is an exquisite instance of the union of the two principles, delicate bas-reliefs adorning its massy foundation, while the open tracery of the upper windows attracts the eye by its slender intricacy, and a rich cornice crowns the whole. In such truly fine cases of this disposition, the upper work is effective by its quantity and intricacy only, as the lower portions by delicacy. So also in the Tour de Bure at Rouen, where, however, The detail is massy throughout, subdividing into rich meshes as it descends. In the bodies of buildings the principle is less safe, but its discussion is not connected with our present subject. 14. Finally, work may be wasted by being too good for its material or too fine to bear exposure. And this, generally a characteristic of late, especially of Renaissance work, is perhaps the worst fault of all. I do not know anything more painful or pitiful than the kind of ivory carving with which the Certoza of Pavia and part of the Colleone Sepulchral Chapel at Bergamo and other such buildings are encrusted, of which it is not possible so much as to think without exhaustion, and a heavy sense of the misery it would be to be forced to look at it at all. And this is not from the quantity of it, nor because it is bad work, Much of it is inventive and able, but because it looks as if it were only fit to be put in inlaid cabinets and velveted caskets, as if it could not bear one drifting shower or gnawing frost. We are afraid for it, anxious about it, and tormented by it, and we feel that a massy shaft and a bold shadow would be worth it all. Nevertheless, even in cases like these, much depends on the accomplishment of the great ends of decoration. If the ornament does its duty, if it is ornament, and its points of shade and light tell in the general effect, we shall not be offended by finding that the sculptor, in his fullness of fancy, has chosen to give much more than these mere points of light, and has composed them of groups of figures. But if the ornament does not answer its purpose, if it have no distant, no truly decorative power if generally seen it be a mere incrustation and meaningless roughness we shall only be chagrined by finding when we look close that the incrustation has cost years of labour and has millions of figures and histories in it and would be the better of being seen through a stanhope lens hence the greatness of the northern gothic as contrasted with the latest italian it reaches nearly the same extreme of detail but it never loses sight of its architectural purpose, never fails in its decorative power, not a leaflet in it but speaks, and speaks far off too, and so long as this be the case, there is no limit to the luxuriance in which such work may legitimately and nobly be bestowed. 15. No limit. It is one of the affectations of architects to speak of overcharged ornament. Ornament cannot be overcharged if it be good, and it is always overcharged when it is bad. I have given on the opposite page, figure one, one of the smallest niches of the central gate of Rouen. That gate, I suppose, to be the most exquisite piece of pure flamboyant work existing, for though I have spoken of the upper portions, especially the receding window, as degenerate, the gate itself is of a purer period, and has hardly any Renaissance taint. There are four strings of these niches, each with two figures beneath it, round the porch, from the ground to the top of the arch, with three intermediate rows of larger niches, far more elaborate, besides the six principal canopies of each outer pier. The total number of the subordinate niches alone each worked like that in the plate, and each with a different pattern of traceries in each compartment is one hundred and seventy-six. Footnote. With different patterns of traceries in each. I have certainly not examined the seven hundred and four traceries, four to each niche, so as to be sure that none are alike, but they have the aspect of continual variation, and even the roses of the pendants of the small groined niche roofs are all of different patterns. End footnote. Yet in all this ornament there is not one cusp, one finial, that is useless. Not a stroke of the chisel is in vain. The grace and luxuriance of it all are visible, sensible, rather, even to the uninquiring eye, and all its minuteness does not diminish the majesty while it increases the mystery of the noble and unbroken vault. It is not less the boast of some styles that they can bear ornament, than of others that they can do without it but we do not often enough reflect that those very styles of so haughty simplicity owe part of their pleasurableness to contrast and would be wearisome if universal they are but the rests and monotones of the art it is to its far happier far higher exaltation that we owe those fair fronts of variegated mosaic charged with wild fancies and dark hosts of imagery thicker and quainter than ever filled the depth of midsummer dream those vaulted gates trellised with close leaves those window labyrinths of twisted tracery and starry light those misty masses of multitudinous pinnacle and diademed tower the only witnesses perhaps that remain to us of the faith and fear of nations all else for which the builder sacrificed has passed away, all their living interests and aims and achievements. We know not for what they laboured, and we see no evidence of their reward. Victory, wealth, authority, happiness, all have departed, though bought by many a bitter sacrifice. But of them and their life and their toil upon the earth, one reward, one evidence is left to us in those gray heaps of deep-wrought stone. They have taken with them to the grave their powers, their honors, and their errors, but they have left us their adoration. End of chapter 1, part 2. Reading by Todd Albrecht.